took as we looked at the major movements of God as he was doing one thing. What was that? Bringing his people back into fellowship with him. That was his goal. It's always been his goal. It will always be his goal. And he will fulfill that goal in the second advent when Jesus comes again and we, are ha- we have the privilege of being in God's presence in his fellowship for eternity. That's his goal. God was so committed to inviting us into a warm relationship with him over and over and over. One of the areas that I really wanted to slow down during that series was when we got into the uh, Gospels. And uh, there's so much in the Gospels that we weren't able to deal with. We just had to look at a really big picture of what Jesus was doing and saying. And we only had the opportunity to spend maybe two to three sermons uh, on the, the life and work and ministry of Jesus and the disciples. But because of that, I'm starting a series today called Introducing dot, 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 Jesus from the book of Mark. Uh, so I, I've been wanting to just slow down and, and soak in the life of Jesus for several months. This, this will actually take many months to do. It's a short uh, short gospel. It's only 16 chapters. It's one of the shortest of the gospels. But we're going to just slow down and spend some time in, in what Jesus says and his parables. It's going to take several months. It could take six months. It could take 10 months. Every once in a while, I may stop to do a short series on something else. But uh, most of this next year, we're going to be spending our time in Mark. Uh, I'd encourage you to spend some time reading through the Gospel of Mark. You guys have done a great job reading large chunks of the Bible as You've gone through the story, so that's become a good habit. So uh, I just encourage you, would you mind uh, taking my challenge, and this coming week, I'd like for you to read the book of Mark all the way through this week. Now, I found it to be helpful to sit down and just read the book uh, all the way through. It only takes about an hour. Often you're on your scrolling for an hour or you're reading the news for an hour, Maybe reading a novel, but I'd just encourage you, read the book of Mark in one setting and just look at this big picture. I knew that I would be preaching, and I just wanted to commit myself to reading through the book of Mark multiple times. So in the last two months, I've read the book of Mark uh, 10 times just to get the movement in my head. And so I just encourage you, as we're studying, read it in different translations, listen to it being read. Read it yourself in one setting, maybe read one chapter at a time sometimes, but make sure that you're reading that multiple times as we study, and especially this first week. Some quick facts about the man who wrote the book of Mark. Mark is often called John Mark. You might remember the story when Peter had just miraculously escaped from prison. The very first house he went to was Mark's house. In fact, it says in Acts, then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people gathered and were were praying. So this was the very first place that Peter went when the angel helped him to escape. Uh, One of the 
two times that Peter escaped from prison, he went straight to John Mark's house. John Mark's mother, Mary, was a leader in this new church. Mark also traveled with Paul and Barnabas. In fact, he was, we believe he was the cousin to Barnabas, but he traveled with Paul quite a bit. He will be with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but then he'll leave them. And for some reason, and we really don't know why, Paul didn't appreciate the fact that Mark uh, left him and so, uh, on, during the first journey, so he didn't even invite him on the second missionary journey. Uh, but later on, uh, Paul and, and Mark ministered together on other journeys. So, uh, so you can hear the voice of Paul sometimes in Mark's writings. Mark later became a significant uh, ministry partner with Paul. In fact, in 2 Timothy, uh, we see the, uh, that uh, at the end of Paul's life, when he was imprisoned in Rome, he asked specifically for Mark, saying, he is very useful for me in ministry. So whatever conflict there was earlier in their, in their ministry together, later in Paul's last days, he said, bring, bring Mark to me. He, he was so beneficial for me. But it's really important to understand that Mark worked closely, though, with Peter. Uh, Mark is with Peter in Rome when the great apostle writes his first letter. 1 Peter 5.13 says, Mark, my son, sends greetings. Mark spent a significant amount of time writing on behalf of Peter. So uh, as Peter was writing, or Peter was verbally quoting his letters, Mark often was the one that was his secretary. He was the one writing what Peter was saying. The connection is important because the, the, the view of the early church was that Mark is hearing the first eyewitness of Peter's stories. He had spent years now listening to Peter's uh, eyewitness of all of the stories of Jesus. Remember, Mark isn't one of the original 12 uh, disciples. Peter was. So Peter saw Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He watched the miracles of Jesus. He prayed with Jesus. He was one of the best friends of Jesus. And now, for several years, Mark, after the crucifixion and resurrection, Mark is now traveling with Peter, and he's hearing these stories. So when you're reading the book of Mark, you need to put the glasses of Peter on. And remember that he's now telling the, the stories of the eyewitness of Peter. Mark didn't see all of these stories, but he spent years with Peter, and he's writing from often the perspective of Peter. And there's so many times as I've been reading through the book of Mark, I can hear Peter's voice, or I can, I ask myself, why, why did Mark say it that way? Do you remember, uh, there's only, uh, so the the resurrection is in all four, uh, all four Gospels, but Mark's Gospel is the only time when the disciples uh, uh, run to, uh, the two disciples run to the, uh, the empty tomb, and the angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Isn't that interesting? 
I wonder if Mark hung around Peter so much. And as Peter over and over and over told the story of how Christ forgave him for denying him three times, and what a wonderful act of grace it was for Christ to have the angel say, go tell the disciples that I've risen, and don't forget to tell Peter. It's stories like that that we can hear Peter's voice in Mark's gospel. So when you read the book of Mark, make sure you're putting on the glasses of Peter because it was Peter's stories that Mark is writing. Some interesting facts about Mark's gospel. It is the shortest gospel. There's no Christmas story in, in, uh, in this gospel. Uh, the Christmas story only shows up Matthew and Luke. Uh, There's far fewer teachings of Jesus. There's fewer Old Testament quotations in this short gospel. It is the most dramatic gospel, no doubt. Uh, He uses immediately, the Greek word for immediately, 41 times, and the rest of the New Testament, that word is only used 10 times. So that's just the way that Mark talks. In fact, some people describe Mark's gospel as as a, that he's a photojournalist. He's someone who takes pictures of actions and it's really quick stories. Mark paints pictures of what others saw and he gives them in rapid succession. It tends to focus on the actions of Jesus rather than the words of Jesus. This morning, I'd like to, to focus our time on the very first 15 verses the people in Mark's gospel will often be confused about Jesus' identity. Some will think that, that Jesus is lying to them about who he is. Some will think that Jesus is absolutely nuts. But others, those who spend time wrestling with the truth of his words, they soon realize that he truly is their Lord, and their Messiah. But for us readers, it's, it isn't like that. Mark tells us immediately who Jesus is. In this introduction to Jesus, we are shown and told who he is. Mark says he's like no one else. He is held up before us as the centerpiece of God's plan of salvation and is to be the centerpiece of our faith. So I invite you to stand in honor of reading God's word. And I'm going to be reading Mark chapter 1, 1 through 15. Can I just tell you that what I'm about to read to you is God's holy, inspired word without error, And if you'll listen, if you'll read it, and you will apply it, I promise you, God's word will radically change your life. Hear the word of the Lord. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness Prepare the way for the Lord. 
make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair. With a leather belt around his waist, he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up from the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. At the very beginning of Mark, at the very beginning, Mark wants us to know some very important things about Jesus. The first, he is saying simply, listen, Jesus is the Christ. Mark's opening sentence is kind of a a title, kind of a beginning of the narrative itself. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Kind of a title for the whole book. Mark begins his gospel with a phrase that we recognize from Genesis 1-1, don't we? He says the beginning of the good news. In Genesis, we have in the beginning. For Mark, James Edwards says, for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. And then he reveals a life-shattering statement. An introduction to what will take the rest of his gospel to, to explain. He says then, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the good news that Christianity offers the whole world. He has already by faith recognized that Jesus was not a liar. He was not a lunatic, but he was certainly the Lord himself. And Mark was announcing that Christianity offers the Christ. That's what Christianity offers. Christianity doesn't offer a political party. 
Christianity doesn't offer a new diet. Christianity doesn't offer tips for a better marriage. Not five things to do to make more money next year. They offer the Christ. Christianity offers a person unlike anyone who's ever lived. He said, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now to call him Jesus sounds to us more remarkable than it would have been in that day. Today, at least in English families, we don't call our name our boys Jesus. In some Hispanic communities or uh, uh, those who speak Spanish, they might name their son Jesus. But most of the time in English language, we, we don't do that. In that day, Jesus wasn't a, a, a name. It was just a common name. Jesus is the Greek way to write the name. Hebrew Jews would have called him Yeshua or Joshua. That's just a, a common name, Frank or Bob or John, right now in our culture. Joshua was one of the most common names for men during the first century. That's why it made sense to call him Jesus of Nazareth, because there was also probably a Jesus of any town, any neighborhood. So they said, which Jesus? Oh, Jesus of Nazareth? Okay, yeah, we've got that one. Jesus, Joseph's son? Yeah, we, we know that Jesus. He wasn't just, he wasn't Joshua from Jericho. He was the Joshua from Nazareth. You know, Jesus' son. Now that name does have a special meaning. Joshua means Yahweh or my help. But many would have had that name during that day. But none of those baby Joshua's or baby Jesus's would have also had the name the Christ. Because none of them were. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. So Christ and Messiah, it's the same word. One is just in Greek and one is in, is in Hebrew. It's the title saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises anticipating a Messiah. An anointed one who came as a king, who would come as a deliverer, a champion of the people of God, but the Christ God provided wasn't the Christ that they expected. The Jews during this day and even before, they thought that they would be looking for someone who looked a bit like King David. Someone who was kind of a holy warrior who would establish the earthly kingdom that Jews would finally be in control of their own destinies. Someone who would take down the Romans and all of the earthly tyrants. But even by the end of our passage, it'll be obvious that Jesus the Christ was a very different Messiah than they expected. Mark then introduces Jesus in the loftiest terms. He said, he's not only Jesus the Christ, but he is the Son of God. I, I can't overemphasize how much of a brain explosion that was for the Jew who heard that. 
J. Gresham Macon was, uh, was and is probably, he's passed away a hundred years ago, was one of the greatest Greek uh, scholars. He, he wrote even in the early 1900s, and he was doing a radio address in 1935 when he was trying to communicate clearly who Jesus was. And in talking about Jesus as God, he said that there's, there's a common reflex that isn't helpful. He said, when we say Jesus is God, we often lower what we mean by God. Some even take the approach of thinking that we're all gods in some way. We all have a measure of the divine in us, some kind of pantheism. But Macon said that's not what Christians are saying at all. And this is what he said, quote, Now, the Christian meaning of the term deity of Christ is fairly clear. The Christian believes that there is a personal God creator and ruler of the universe, a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. So when the Christian says that Jesus Christ is God, or when he says that he believes in the deity of Christ, he means that the same person who is known to history as Jesus of Nazareth existed before he became man from all eternity as infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. That's what the Scripture means. And that's what John Mark meant. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's who Mark is introducing us to. That's who he will work so hard for us to see and believe throughout the entire gospel. He was also saying that Jesus used a messenger to introduce himself. Mark's opening is brief, but he still carves out a place for John the Baptist, who is the messenger here. John the Baptist was a curious figure. I spent a little time a couple months ago explaining who he was, but he's in, he's in the New Testament, but in some ways, he's in the last line of the Old Testament prophets. If you think of Isaiah and Malachi and Jeremiah and, and Daniel, th those guys, he's, he kind of fits with them more than he fits with the disciples, doesn't he? What sets him apart is where other Old Testament prophets looked ahead to a coming Christ, John the Baptist saw the Christ now. They looked ahead, John the Baptist said, the guy in front of me, that's who you need to be looking at. John had his own journey of faith. He didn't get it right all, all the time, but he saw Christ. He knew Christ. In fact, he was Christ's first cousin. So he knew him quite well. And John himself introduced in pretty lofty terms who this Jesus was. We find it in Mark 1, 2 through 3. Two prophecies are spliced together here. It's part of Malachi 3 and part of Isaiah 40. Malachi speaks of a messenger coming before the Lord comes. 
Isaiah speaks of a voice sent to prepare the way of the Lord. Both of these prophecies speak of a forerunner. A forerunner during this time was someone who would go before the king or before the, the wealthy person. And they would make sure the village was clean, make sure the roads were, were, were prepared, the potholes were filled, the dead animals were off the road, make sure everybody was waiting in the village for the politician or the king or the wealthy person. That was the forerunner. A man, he was saying, a man will come first and then the Lord himself will come. These two prophecies were put together. So Isaiah's voice crying in the wilderness is to prepare the way for the Lord. Well, John's ministry is basically to say, the Lord, Yahweh, is coming. Get ready. He is coming. Prepare your hearts. Prepare your lives. The, the Lord is coming. The God of the Old Testament is about to return Get ready. Malachi, who's the last prophetic book in the Old Testament, goes on to say that his messenger is also connected to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. The last two verses of the Old Testament say that Elijah will come again and then the day of the Lord will come. Elijah is the reason we learn that John the Baptist wore this really odd set of clothing, camel's hair, and a leather, boat, a leather belt around his waist. It really wasn't uh, odd for people to wear camel hair clothing and leather belt. That's actually what Elijah wore as well. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 1, his clothing uh, was a bit unusual. The poor people who lived out in the desert might wear something like that. But his diet really wasn't odd. It's odd to us. How many of you have cooked locusts and honey today on your menu? Okay. But if you lived in the, the desert of the Dead Sea, there's not a lot to eat. There's a lot of sand. If you want to boil it, maybe get something out of the sand. But bugs and things that fly and locusts, that's, that was a, a bit normal. Uh, Mark says that John the Baptist ate locusts and with honey. Locusts were just an occasional part of the diet. As one writer said, they were, high, they were a high source of protein and minerals. Mm. There's nothing, nothing like a good crunch when eating bugs. Makes me hungry. John the Baptist's clothing is meant to tell us that he is the return of Elijah. That wasn't by accident. And that means that the return of the Lord is about to happen. When Jesus comes to John to be baptized, it's the day of the Lord. It's just what he had been preaching. John had a ministry of baptism. It was a ministry of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, to us, that sounds familiar. We have a baptism right here in the floor of our platform. Most churches have some type of baptism. If they don't, they go to a, a creek or a river or a pool. Not many of us 
are shocked that there might be a baptism service but because it's just what Christians do. But being baptized by someone else by immersion in water had really never been done before the time of John the Baptist. In fact, the noun baptism didn't even exist until Christians began to use that word. A few people had practiced some type of self-baptism, self-dunking. There was kind of a, a cleansing ritual as an act of consecration. People practiced ceremonial washings before they went into the tabernacle or went into the, the temple. It was just basically pouring water over their hands and pouring it over their feet. But nothing like what John the Baptist was doing. But John is aware that even though his baptism is new, it's not the baptism we should make a big deal about. He prophesied of someone coming with a much greater baptism. He's the one that we should make a big deal about. Verses 7 and 8, it says, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is just a typical man who is pouring water on people or baptizing them in the water, but he knew he could not pour God's Holy Spirit on people. God had revealed to him that the one to come, only he could do that. The one who would come could immerse people in God's Spirit in the same way that John was immersing them in water. Water could symbolize things, but it didn't have the power to do anything in the one being baptized. Only the person's faith could receive the forgiveness of sins God offered. But people saw something different in John the Baptist. They saw a work of the Holy Spirit that they had never experienced before themselves. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out on people, God can do a new and greater work in that person who is receiving it. Now remember, it's Peter who is behind Mark's writing. Also remember that this gospel, Mark's gospel, was written after Peter experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So Mark is writing after the book of Acts, all of that had been accomplished. So Peter and Mark could look back at the explosion of the, uh, of the church. They had watched the Holy Spirit fall down and tongues of fire and them speaking in different languages and the gospel being proclaimed in 23 languages in one instance and the church exploding into 4,000 people all at once. They watch that. So as, as Mark is writing this passage, he's already experienced the book of Acts. It would be Peter who would be part of the great outpouring of God's Spirit during that season of Pentecost. Peter would have 
preached the, the great Pentecost sermon where he explained that what people were seeing and hearing was the Lord Jesus Christ pouring out the Holy Spirit on his people from God's right hand. Mark had been soaking in Peter's teaching and experiencing for many years before he wrote this gospel. So he was listening to Peter in one ear and he was telling the story of John in the other. And John was saying, listen, my baptism is nothing compared to what is about to happen with the one that is coming. He was, uh, let's begin looking at the baptism of Christ. So far, we've had three witnesses telling us who Jesus is, just in these first eight verses or so. Mark himself, in the introduction in Mark 1.1, he announced that Jesus is the Christ. And then in Mark 1, 2, and 3, it was the Old Testament, Malachi and Isaiah, the prophets, who were now saying he is the Christ, the Christ is coming. And the third one now is John the Baptist in verses 7 and 8, the cousin of Jesus. So now we have Mark and the Old Testament prophets and John the Baptist who, is, who are saying this is the Christ. Now there's a fourth witness that is the witness behind all of these witnesses. It's God the Father in 10 and 11. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, the scripture says, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. It's one of the several times that the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit show up in one story. God, our Heavenly Father, has his own way of speaking. He's not limited to words and small gestures. He speaks in ways for all of us to see and hear. He does several things to communicate to the world that Jesus bears this divine stamp of approval, that Jesus is indeed God's Son. First, he speaks by tearing open the heavens, the Scripture says. When God wants to do something dramatic, he can do anything he, want, he wants. And here, the scripture says, he tears open the heavens. I don't quite know what that looked like. I don't know how that happens, but it happens in Psalms 18 and Isaiah 64. At the end of Mark's gospel, God will tear open the veil in the, in the, the temple of the Holy of Holies. It's the same verb that Mark is using here. And secondly, he now anoints Jesus with the Holy Spirit. God does. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, not just a title, but it's a fact, Jesus was saying. He's the one anointed by the Holy Spirit for the work God gave him to do. And then then third, the Father begins to speak. 
Sometimes we look up at the sky and we pray for God just to, just to help us to hear his voice. I, I know I'm not the only one to ever have prayed that. I'm guessing that all of us have. But here, he actually does. They hear him speak. He speaks a word of affirmation to his son, the anointed with the anointing, with the spirit, the voice of commendation, call us back to the Old Testament. They give us more insight into who Jesus is. Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen to whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And in Psalms 2 it says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my Son, today I have, be, I have begotten you. R.T. France, a writer of many years ago, points out the people we read about in Mark's narrative will be unclear about Jesus' identity, but we, the readers, will have no doubt. In the very first 12 verses, four different people Say that, listen, the one that is coming, the one is standing here, he is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, Jesus introduces his kingdom. In this fourth section, we see Mark, the dramatic storyteller, come out. And in 12 and 13, he, it says, immediately, the Spirit drove him out he drove him out into the wilderness with wild animals. And here Jesus begins to do the work that he continues to do. Overcome the reign of Satan in this world. He takes on the devil by, by letting himself be tempted by Satan, the scripture says. It was a very personal and unique way that Satan attacked and tempted him. And for the details of the temptation, people would have to wait for Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel, they, they're much more clear in telling the story. Here, all we know is that Jesus won the battle. And that's all we need to know, really, at least at this point, that Jesus won the battle. The wild animals is a symbol of the danger of the wilderness, but to readers who would vividly recall the way Christians were wrapped in animal skins and placed in arenas with wild animals. They would remember what happened in those Roman arenas. It was also close, it was a close tie to Nero's persecution. They would remember how horrible it was for, for Christians during those years. Then this whole introduction leads us to the high point. Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee. We find it in verse 14 and on, the ministry of proclaiming the gospel of God, announcing that the time is fulfilled. In other words, human history has been leading to this point, and the time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand, he said, and it's drawn near. God's kingdom, here he's talking about God's rule. God has always ruled as king. Jesus isn't announcing that God has suddenly become king with Jesus' coming. 
Just like announcing that this person is the president. That's not what is happening. God has always been and will always be king over his kingdom. Jesus is announcing that God's kingdom has now come near and you can enter it yourself. How? Mark and Jesus is quite clear. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus, who is the Christ. Would you please stand? So, what do we have in these opening verses? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I want you just to imagine that you are standing in the shoes of a Jewish man or Jewish woman who hears those words from John the Baptist for the very first time. Just imagine you're standing out in that desert. You yourself in sandals, it's hot. Maybe you also have camel hair clothing and you've been eating a diet of bugs. It's just a normal day for you. And you see this really odd man out with some water, which is kind of rare. For generations, your people have listened to the prophets prophesying about the coming of the Messiah for generations. You have gone to the temple and you've participated in sacrificing that special pure lamb for the forgiveness of your sins. You've done it every year, all of your life. It's all you've ever known. You've heard your priests speak in tearful sermons about when the Messiah will come. You have dealt with the pain and suffering of enemies over and over and over. And even today, now the Romans have stolen your land and your freedom and the desire for your Messiah could not be more needed. Every morning, every night, every meal, you have prayed, Oh Lord, could today be the day that the Messiah comes? And now you're reading a book. With these words from a man who followed Jesus, who ministered with Paul and Barnabas, who, who experienced these stories through Peter himself, listening to Peter's firsthand experience. And you read the words in the first line, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ the Son of God how would you respond
There's only one way. Repent and believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Father, our heart cries out that we desperately want Jesus to be Christ in our lives. We are hungry for the forgiveness of sins. We are hungry for the Christ, the Son of God, to take up residency in our homes, in our hearts, so that we might become Christ followers, Christians. And Father, this morning, if there are those here who have not yet recognized that you are more than just a Jesus, more than just a man, that you truly are our Messiah, I pray that today that those in this congregation, those watching, would by faith recognize that you are the Messiah, you are their Savior, and that you desire for forgiveness and cleansing if we by faith accept you. Heavenly Father, we give you our lives. We give you our sin. We give you our doubts and our questions, and we invite you to come in and radically change us. In Jesus' name we ask.
you receive this benediction. After John the Baptist finished his proclamation that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the scripture says that Jesus went to Galilee and began to proclaim the good news of God. May you have the privilege to personally wrestle with the truth that Jesus taught the people. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Go in peace, for he's already gone before you. You're dismissed.